0: Hey, we're back. If you've been following this podcast for any length of time, you may have noticed that for the last year or so, we have not posted any new episodes. It's been a crazy year, hasn't it? I mean, from the pandemic to reckoning with racism to the 2020 election and its aftermath, America has been through a lot in the past 12 months. But anyway, we're back now and I'm looking forward to interviewing some interesting people and having some good conversations in the coming months. We hope to have new episodes about every month or so. We'll see how that goes, but that's the goal. And and just so you know, I haven't been sitting around doing nothing for the past year. In fact, it was about a year ago that I I felt this urge to write a book on the topic of social justice from a Christian and biblical perspective, looking at how to apply these biblical principles to modern-day situations that involve injustice. And what resulted was a book that I entitled Do Justice, The Case for Biblical Social Justice. You know, I had to get the Do Justice in there somehow, right, in the title. Anyway, if you're interested in checking it out, it's available now at dojusticebooks.com. That's books with an S at the end, dojusticebooks.com. Or you can go to Amazon, and um, there's both paperback and ebook versions available uh, for Kindle or Apple users. Um, if you appreciate the content of this podcast, I think you'll enjoy the book. I think you will. You know, one thing I should add, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I probably should have said this like many episodes ago. If you ever hear strange sounds uh, in the background on this uh, podcast, it's probably chickens that you're hearing. Yes, chickens. Because here's the deal I record uh, these conversations in my home office. We have a little studio here, and it's right next to our garden where we currently have 14 chickens yes 14 and uh, it just seems like whenever I come out here to record something or talk on the phone or whatever it is the chickens just get especially lively and they start squawking and I don't know if it's because I'm coming out when they're laying their eggs and then the rooster crows whatever so I just wanted you to know that so that you know we do try to minimize that but sometimes it might come through a little bit anyway that's the story And so now, you know. I'm Steve Allred, and this is Do Justice. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Walsh. Dr. Walsh is a medical doctor and holds a doctorate in public health. He served as a government director of public health and worked in the private sector as well. He currently directs a nonprofit called the Slave Food Project, and you can find their podcast and videos on YouTube. Just search for the Slave Food Project there, or you can go to their website, slavefood.org. They've got some links to the uh, to the podcast there as well as um, great articles and things like that. All sorts of good resources. You know, with a pandemic affecting all of our lives over the past year, I thought it would be helpful to talk with a public health professional and discuss how the public health arena intersects with issues like racial justice, love for neighbor, personal freedom, things like that. And so without further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with Dr. Walsh. So, I wanted to start out with just talking about your background. You have a background that's very diverse when it comes to the um the work that you do uh, Tell us about your your you know the work you've done in the public health arena medical arena your your uh, educational background you know et cetera. Can you give us just an idea of that
1: yeah so I'm, I, yeah I'm a medical doctor I did medical school at the Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami in Florida from there I went to Loma Linda University, and did um, a preventive medicine residency. I later also did a family medicine residency, uh, training programs. Uh, but I, but I also got a master's and a doctorate in public health, and worked for many years in public health. I was on the Centers for Disease Controls, one of their committees when um, the um, when the um, HPV vaccine came in was coming into existence. Um, I worked with the former Surgeon General on some committees around sexual health um, uh, at Morehouse School of Medicine. I have also worked directly in public health in Orange County, California and in Pasadena, California, Um, and even sat on advisory committees for the President of the United States during the Bush and Obama administration. So I've had a lot of... um, I've done a lot of work, you know, done a lot of talks for a lot of conferences in public health over the years. Um, but now I practice medicine primarily and um, do some public health work kind of on the side.
0: Nice. So you you definitely have had not only experience, but your your education is, uh, you know, qualifies you to speak to the things we'll be talking about today. And, you know, here we are, we're in the uh, kind of at the end, I guess, of a pandemic Um and so you have definitely been, I'm sure, called upon to talk about these issues and, and use your your knowledge and skills over the last year or two here with with uh, the COVID 19 situation. Um, I want to ask you about. So I want to go back, to, you know, in history uh, a few decades to something that historians call the Tuskegee experiment. You know, would you be able to kind of give us a Just a brief overview of what that was, because I think some people might know about it, others may not.
1: Yes, so the Tuskegee experiment actually um, happened um, in the U.S. last century when the U.S. government, even after having treatment for syphilis, continued to follow, and this was through the Centers for Disease Control, continued to follow African-American males, predominantly, obviously, the syphilis spread, um, uh, and following to see what the end um, like endpoint um, 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 consequences of syphilis infection would be, and refuse to treat them uh, um, over the decades. I think it was Bill Clinton finally kind of um, made amends and apologized for it, but um it was pretty tragic as you know many children were born with problems, and um, these men spread these the, the disease to their wives, um, and so forth. so it was It's one of the things in the black community that is often pointed to as a reason um, African-Americans don't trust the medical community. But I would argue it's 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 just one of many other things that actually have contributed to that attitude of distrust um, with the medical community.
0: I mean, and that is just a horrible, you know, uh, event in history among many other, uh, you know, events that, um, were part of America's, um, history of racial injustice really. But I mean, essentially, you know, these, uh, folks were used as experiments, you know, lab, lab animals almost, right. You know, they're, they're treated like lab animals. Um, and, uh, when there was a cure available, it was not, um, even given to them or they were told they were being treated, but in reality. Um, they weren't, and so what? What a what a terrible blot on our history. Um, so, I mean, let me just kind of ask you then. So that that's just one thing, and, and you mentioned some other things. What what are the other um, you know components that you feel like kind of contribute to you know the African American community's general distrust of government when it comes to to this type of issue?
1: You know, you can go back um, the the father of gynecology in the United States. Um, I actually did a lot of the work he did on, um, black women, um, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. in order to learn to do surgeries that later on he was touted as being, um, a pioneer and innovator for he actually practiced on black women. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that of course, um, uh, you know, was a, was a, to this day, um, is still a, a, you know, ugly blot as well. Um. As you know, clearly, you know, sterilizing women and doing some of these things. Um,
0: it's not some uh, without anesthesia, as I recall, right?
1: Some I mean, just terrible, uh, yeah, just terrible. And, um, uh, you know, and so, you know, um, those are Dr. Sims, and you know, he's called the father of gynecology, but you know, things like that, uh, um, hurt, I would say. Just as much historically, there's a lot of things that happen even just day to day. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of research studies that show African-Americans who go to the hospital with pain are less likely to actually get treated for pain, Mm -hmm. which goes back to old theories like this, like Dr. Sims had, that somehow black people had higher pain tolerances. So you could do things with them you couldn't do with white patients. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the, um, uh, when it looks, you look at cardiology um, and cardiovascular disease if an African-American is, goes to the hospital with the exact same symptoms as a white person, there are studies that show that they are much less likely to get some of the more advanced treatments um, than a white patient would get. Um, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of assumptions that are made about African-Americans as patients. And that is partly where you get some of this distrust. um it's it's just a cultural disconnect in the medical field in general, in my opinion, and I think that's what leads to a lot of this. It's it, the history contributes to it, but I, I think it would have probably faded if it was just history. I think it's the day to day interactions that you get when you go to an emergency room, and you're treated as if you know you're a drug addict because you know you actually have a kidney stone and asking for pain medicine, um, you're treated like you're a drug addict and someone else isn't. That I think is what continues to drive uh, Mm a lot of distrust and why people are like, well, you know, why would I run in and get a vaccine when you're saying I need a vaccine now when, you know, six months ago I was in the hospital and you wouldn't, you know, you didn't want to give me treatment for a problem that I legitimately had.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, and so, you know, a lot of folks who are not minorities, like, you know, I, I've seen some white people, Using the Tuskegee experiment, um, incident, for example, and they're pulling it up and saying, Hey, listen, see here, this is why we can't trust the government. You know, and I mean, you brought up a lot of good reasons why, uh, African-Americans in particular, uh, you know, don't have a good relationship with the medical community and, and maybe by extension, then the, you know, the public health, um, community as well so but a lot of folks are bringing up the a ski experiment and these other things and they're using it as kind of an excuse to say we're not going to listen to um you know what the cdc tells us or we don't think these vaccines are safe blah 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 and we can get into some of the the weeds on that maybe in a minute here but let me just ask kind of a hard question i don't know if there's an answer to but why should people and especially you know Black people uh, and minority groups in America trust the CDC, U.S. government at large, to tell them the truth about their health and about a vaccine, whether it's safe or not, about a disease, whether it's you know doing what it's really doing or whatever, in the context of this history and of these present realities? Why, why should they trust uh, these folks?
1: I don't know. I think and you're living in a world <coughs> where you have to be careful trusting anybody. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't care who you are, what color you are, sure, because there's a lot of, um, I, and I'm, let me, let me start by saying I'm a, I'm a very strong patriot. Uh, you know, I love the United States and I am a, a believer in capitalism. Um, I want to say that at the out front, mm-hmm. uh, at the outset here, but part of the challenge is a lot of this is driven by money. Mm-hmm. So my problem, you know, it, you know, maybe if you went back 50 years, a hundred years, even 30 years, a lot of this would be race. Race. Your worries would be around things like race and inequities around you know socioeconomic status and so forth. But the truth of the matter is, today, if you have the only re- the major thing you need to look at is money. Where does the money go? Who's making the money? Um, and can money be then used as a reason to do or not do something? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in our and we'll talk a little bit later on about the slave food project. One thing we point out is, you know the federal government tells you to eat this food pyramid, but it subsidizes the food industry antithetically to what they're telling you you should eat, um, even though what they're telling you to eat isn't very healthy either. Um, you know. So they subsidize even worse than that. That's what more what you gotta look at. So what I tell uh, African-American groups when you're talking about the vaccine and so forth is, um, step back, who is getting the vaccine, right? D- don't, don't just look at the past, and one of the things that that I think has changed a lot of African Americans' minds on this is they've seen that white people are the ones running to get it. That in New York there were claims people were willing to pay you know ten thousand dollars for a COVID vaccine shot. Mm-hmm. That to change the way you look at them, like, well, clearly if the, if this vaccine is designed to kill people, um, and and we're not lining up to get it, but other people are running to get it, then maybe our thinking is wrong. Maybe mm-hmm. this is actually a vaccine. And the only thing you worry about then is. You know where is the money going? Who's you know is there is there a financial incentive to lie to you? But the problem with that is, as you saw with um, the 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 vaccine, um, the Johnson and Johnson, and the worries around um, blood clots, and quickly with just like a few cases, you know the whole thing was paused and everyone looked at it. So it tells you somewhere in here there is a there's a level of accountability. I think that is that is authentic. Um, which, reassures, which is reassuring to me and should be reassuring to others. I do not think there's any vast conspiracy around a vaccine. Um, I, I think what's what's really happening is that we're looking for a way to um, actually protect the population. And that's what's so scary because, you know, a lot of people just can't get their brain around the government trying to protect so many people all at once <laughs> and, and yeah. so there's not be a reason for it.
0: Well, and it's interesting. You talk about follow the money or, you know, look who's getting the money. And it's because you know, a lot of folks who are very anti-vaccine, you know, anti-vax. I mean, that whole movement is interesting, too, because they're always talking about how the pharmaceutical companies are making bank. And in some cases, they definitely are. I mean, let's let's face it. Um but then you look at some of the folks who create some of these YouTube videos, you know, bashing vaccines, and and they're making bank too. You know, they're getting they're getting lots of clicks and
1: follow the money.
0: Yeah, so I yeah I, I that's that's one factor to look at for sure. Um, but I think we have to be skeptical, probably, with claims on all sides when it comes to these things. Um, so let me just kind of I appreciate your your perspective here because I think you're kind of you know, you're being intellectually honest here because you're, you're, you're dealing with, you know, you're saying, Hey, the government can't necessarily be trusted. Think for yourself essentially. Right. And, um, examine stuff to see if it is true. Um, so then let's, let's talk about this from a public health department, you know, standpoint. Um, you've done that job before, um, and you still work in, you know, dealing with public health issues. What, is the role of, 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 public health departments in American society. Um, and maybe you can speak a little bit to that historically and then, you know, like, yeah, let's just kind of talk about what that role is. Cause again, I, I think a lot of people don't trust what you know, comes out of the CDC or whatever. And so, uh, you know, how, what, 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 in your mind is like the balance there when, when the CDC tells us to do something or not do something, um, do they have a role that's legitimate there? in your mind?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, again, you got to step back and be careful. You know, we are, you know, as a Christian, we are in an imperfect world filled with imperfect people, which create imperfect organizations. Um, Mm -hmm. so you've got to understand that, you know, there's, there there literally is no perfect organization on the planet. Um, and historically you, you could go back and find problems with probably any organization, you know, you you look at, um, that that's been around more than 10 years. Um, the role of public health departments, the Centers for Disease Control, is, number one, surveillance, right? You want to look and see what disease trends are happening in the country and around the world. If there's an Ebola outbreak somewhere in Africa, uh, what is the likelihood that Ebola is going to reach the shores of the United States if you're the CDC? Um, and what do we do to protect people if it if it's on its way or gets here? How do we stop it from getting here? How do we help, in the case of the Centers for Disease Control um, and the U.S. government, how do we actually help? The countries in Africa that might be dealing with Ebola or, you know, MERS, the Mediterranean um, coronavirus that came out back in like 2007, 2008. How do we help them and monitor and control it there so that we don't have to deal with it here? So you surveil and you look to see what's coming. A great example of that is sexually transmitted infections, which have been on the rise year over year for the past, you know, I don't know, six, seven years. It's, you know, just sh- shooting up every year. Somebody's got to watch that and realize, okay, we have a problem with, with disease like gonorrhea, chlamydia, herpes. Somebody's got to do surveillance and then begin to try and pivot to how do we protect, which is which moves to the next area where public health departments are important, and that is education. Well, if you're seeing all of a sudden that there's this massive increase in, let's let's just say, you know, influenza this year, Over the previous years, and it seems to be more contagious, more maybe more deadly. Well, your job now is to educate, say, okay, here's how you protect yourself from influenza, or in the case of the sexually transmitted infections, um, you know, these are the trends, and make recommendations, education around how people protect themselves. Now, this is where it gets tricky as well, because here's where it gets political, because not everybody agrees on the best ways to protect you from Mm -hmm. a coronavirus, from an influenza or from gonorrhea or chlamydia. You know, there is a lot of unfortunate baggage that goes along with all of these things that makes public health far more difficult to practice, do, or to be impactful because it can become political on all, on all and every side.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: But from there, the third thing that public health departments really do is policy and advocacy. So the tobacco industry is a great example of that. They had a lot of power. They did a lot of deceptive things, to just be frank and honest. Um, and they, you know, and, and they got the, the policy and advocacy uh, finally got us that we changed rules and laws to protect people who didn't want to smoke. You know, and it's seatbelts and, and tobacco, two public health initiatives um, and, and, to, and uh, tobacco control are two public health initiatives that have saved countless lives. Countless, countless lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Remember when I was a kid when, you know, um, seatbelts were mandated and there was a whole lot of backlash.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: Uh, But the the science is overwhelming. The data is overwhelming that people wearing their seatbelts has been a key contributor to massive decreases in fatalities, driving fatalities. In this country. So that's what public health does. The fourth one would be treatment, but public health really doesn't do that as much anymore. That's more private sector, federally qualified health centers, and things like that.
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be like administering a vaccine, for example, right?
1: Exactly. We do, yeah. which public health departments still do, yes.
0: Okay. Well, it's interesting you bring up seat belts. I remember as a kid, yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, we thought the government was, um, this was the end of the world, you know? I mean, in, in, in my, my little bubble of a, you know religious community at the time and um you know this is like government overreach um a lot of the same things you're hearing today about like mask mandates and social distancing stuff and things like that um so that's interesting so yeah that's a that's a, something I like to talk about here cuz like you have folks who really are concerned about paternalism you know the government you know kind of mandating and dictating everything that we should do and I think there's a legitimate concern there is obviously a continuum or whatever we have to look at and say, you know, at what point does it go too far? Um, We have a constitution, we have constitutional rights, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the argument kind of on the other extreme is, you know, just let everyone make their own decisions. Let people take individual responsibility. Uh, We don't need to be telling the, you know, general public what to do and how to behave. That's not the government's job. And so my question to you is, you know, again, you can speak to kind of your opinion on where the balance is maybe, but just on a big picture level, does it work for every man, every person to be on their own and make their own decision when it comes to a public health crisis, like a pandemic? You know, you say, do you just figure it out for yourself or do we need collective action sometimes with some of these things?
1: Honestly, I would argue you you kind of need both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you definitely need um, the government and and not the government, but true specialists, true, ex, true experts, to be able to step in and say, "Hey, um, you know, it's really important that X, Y, and Z is done," and make those recommendations. The part of the problem with COVID was we, you know, there was a little bit of mixed information mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. Remember. There was a time they were like, no, no, don't put on a mask,
2: you right, know, right.
1: or da, da 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 And then, of course, now put on masks. Well, you, you can't expect people to to trust what we're saying if we kind of speak right. out of both our mouths. It, it just doesn't work very well. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, but you do need some experts saying things. I mean, going back to seatbelts or tobacco, you know, it was basically exact same arguments. But secondhand smoke really does kill people some mm-hmm. in some way more than the person smoking the cigarette. Mm-hmm. So um, somebody's got to speak up and say it. Somebody's got to make recommendations. Somebody's got to have policies for the people who can't protect themselves. You know, the child, you know, that's going to be in a, you know, for example, in a, in a YMCA room, you know, doing puzzles all summer at a summer camp being smoked on by some counselor. That's mm-hmm. you know, that That kind of thing has to, that protection has to happen. But I do believe people also have to, there has to be a balance where there is room for individuals to make decisions and to and to and to and to and to, and to accept risk. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. So I don't you know the coronavirus overall is is not is not the most deadly thing we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at death rates, it what we what we will find out is maybe a lot of uh, of people who've had COVID actually have some long-term effects. Um they don't die, but they you know, I know people patient I have patients who four months later still can't smell anything. I've mm-hmm. uh, Some six months later still are having trouble breathing and having intermittent chest pain. So we don't know, you know, that may be the part of it that's far more interesting is who gets like in a sense, some, some debility from the COVID that lasts longer um, that, that yeah, obviously isn't death. Um, but with all of that said, I think, you, you, we reach a place where you have to make a decision. There's a fork in the road that the U.S. is, is at and the government kind of has to look at, and that is, do you go down the path of saying, look, we're going to really try and get everyone vaccinated and, and, and then force people to be vaccinated if, if all else fails? Or do you stop and say, listen, whoever understands the science, we've explained this, the vaccines are available, you can protect yourself and your family, you can make that choice with the vaccine, or you can decide not to and take that risk. Um, mm-hmm because people want herd immunity, they're leaning towards the other way. So what the states are doing now is offering, you know, lottery incentives. Yeah. All kinds of crazy stuff. (laughs) Incentives, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think that's wrong. I mean, you know, that's, I I would argue that a lot of folk would rather that than than force vaccinations. Um, But that's where we are. And, you know, to some extent you can make the argument, listen, this vaccine is very good at number one, preventing death. It is Phenomenal at it, mm-hmm. and definitely very good at keeping people out of the hospital. And long term, there seem to be no side effects compared to the long term side effects that you can get from actually getting COVID. So when you look at it, you can leave people with the decision and say, "Listen, you could take the risk of getting COVID and having the side effects of COVID, or you could take the vaccine, and it's seemingly so far very minimal risks." Mm-hmm. So you know, you could each individual now can choose because the hospitals are not overwhelmed. The, you know, and again, this is where public health to me has not been at its best in this in this um pandemic is that the goalpost just seems like it keeps moving you know (laughs) at first it was listen we need to shut everybody down so that we can we can flatten the curve so we don't overwhelm the hospitals but then it's like we never came back and figured out okay what do we do now because that means you just have to stay shut down indefinitely which let's be frank and honest causes its own set of public health sure mental health um, educational economic problems um, which it has mm-hmm. their kids may never recover inner city kids poor kids rural kids with you know with less adaptive school systems not at, no don't have access to internet who are going to have this 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 pandemic may literally set them back for the rest of their lives and 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 leave them in a place more vulnerable to poverty than they would have been without the pandemic mm-hmm. so you, at some point you got to make a decision about the two sides of this And, you know, I'm at a point where if people really are going to push back against being vaccinated, mandatory vaccination, leave people with the option. And if they get COVID and they go to the hospital, that's on them, Um, you know you know, maybe, maybe that's not a bad option in a society that people are clamoring for, you know, for their rights and their freedoms.
0: Yeah. And I, I get that. And I hear that. And I've, I've personally kind of wrestled and struggled with that myself. It's like, well, Hey, yeah, just let everyone suffer the consequences of their own decisions. But I think the, tell me if, if I'm wrong on this, the, um, kind of the public health, or at least the, the part of this that affects everybody else is that if, if, You refuse to quarantine, mask, you know, get a vaccine, whatever. And then you go to the hospital. I mean, our hospital system in America is really, uh, it's not made for a pandemic. I mean, we don't have a lot of ICU beds. And so you fill those beds up and then maybe someone else who has been careful, but they got it anyway, you know, they don't have a bed, right? They don't have treatment um i mean is that kind of the issue i mean to me as i look at all of it i'm like that really is really what it comes down to at least with all the quarantines and this kind of stuff it it seems like it's been the availability of medical care has just not been there for a huge amount of people so we've been trying to kind of like slowly limit how many people get this thing is that kind of am i wrong on that
1: no you're right and 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 i'm all all for that and i don't remember i'm not saying you shouldn't People shouldn't have to quarantine um that masks aren't appropriate in certain settings um you know and that you know we shouldn't be pushing vaccinations uh, Sure, or, sure. No, no, or, no, no. Yeah. or making them available um you know uh you're right i mean we don't have unlimited icu beds or equipment um i, I guess my point is just you, you know at some point you're going to hit a place where the resistance to vaccines is going to be pretty strong right and you're going to have to make a decision as to what you do. Now, with that said, the other part of this equation is for the private sector. So, if the airlines say, "Listen, unless you can prove you've been vaccinated, mm-hmm. you can't get on," the or if the Yankees say, "Listen, unless you can prove you've been vaccinated, can't you come can't come game. to the stadium," you know, that's a whole other issue that you know that is not what I'm talking about. I just think, um, you know, at some point, you you know there you know there's going to have to be we're going to have to accept the fact that not everybody's going to be vaccinated, um, mm-hmm. and understand that fortunately, you know, our system, you know, at this point, our system is underwhelmed. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Probably will stay that way until, you know, maybe the fall when we see an uptick in cases of flu and other things, not everybody's kind of more free. Um, it's a very difficult situation. I understand both sides of this, mm-hmm. you know, vaccinate 95% of people. There is no more coronavirus in the United States. Yep. You can kind of move on with your life. But I'll, I'll, there are other people who don't understand the science, and this is a very emotional issue. So explaining the science isn't going to help because, you know, they're, they're also getting misinformation, disinformation, um, or partial information from other folk. And they're very confused or afraid, and they don't want to get the vaccine. Um, and so, you know, at some point, this is going to hit it ahead. And I would assume that's going to happen somewhere around August when it's time for kids to go back to school and universities are mandating the vaccine and mm-hmm. public school systems are, if they can, they're going to mandate the vaccines in 12 and over, or whoever it's approved for. And you're going to have a lot of, it's going to be a very tense situation that we're going to have to think through. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking out loud when I say, listen, at some point you may have to just say, listen, whoever doesn't want the vaccine, the vaccine works so well mm-hmm. to protect the person who gets it. Do you get to a point where you say, OK, we, 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 whether we hit herd immunity, we will hit herd immunity, um, I think, because enough people are going to actually get coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, as we saw in the last bubble, the last surge, November through like March, um, you know, so many people got it. And there's some immunity that should come from that. Mm-hmm. How long it lasts, we don't know. But that's a big part of this issue as well. We, I do believe that that's one of the reasons the, the case rate has dropped so much is that so many people have had it. And they also have some immunity, just like the people who are getting vaccinated. And that combination is helping to bring it down. I do believe the vaccine is such a pure, you know, the mRNA approach especially gives you the spike proteins, which is how the virus actually attaches. So if you have antibodies to that, it's very difficult for you to get, um, you know, a clinical infection, meaning that you actually get any symptoms or risk from it. And I think that's the most protective way you could go. Uh, But we'll just have to wait and see. Um, The numbers may not ever come back up if enough of those two groups of immunity lasts, you know, two or three years.
0: Sure. Well, let's talk about the vaccine. So, you know, I assume you have some familiarity with uh, this vaccine and uh, it's different than any vaccine that we've seen really uh, in the past, at least on a large large scale basis is, is what I understand. Correct. I mean, so this is a mRNA vaccine. Um, there's lots of information out there about it, a lot of misinformation and disinformation like you mentioned. So talk to us about it. You know, why do you think it's safe and, um, or not? And, you know, why do you think people should or should not get it?
1: Well, I would, it, it's, it's, it's that we, people keep saying this, there's just two, couple big things. One of them say, um, one of them say, well, you know, this vaccine is going to alter DNA. Mm hmm um, because of the way it's used, you know, we basically, um, the mRNA is sent in through a capsule, a fatty, uh, fatty, um, lipid layered capsule that can get through the cell membrane, but all of its work is done in the cytoplasm, not in the nucleus. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't get near actual DNA and it can't change DNA. DNA would be like the empire state building. And the mRNA is like the guy who washes the windows. So you can't, you can't, you know, the window washer can't make the Empire State Building any different. It can, it can make windows nice and shiny, but that's about all it can do. And the mRNA is like that. It can't change your DNA. Um, so that's one of the things people say. Um, and then some of the other things that, that I've heard is like they, they, there's like a microchip attached to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a video where people's magnets were sticking, people, magnets were sticking to where people got the shot. <laughs> <laughs> none of that None of that stuff is true there's definitely no chip in the vaccine um whatsoever um and you know uh, you know so, so those are the two two of the big things i'm trying to think somebody else i've heard so many things I don't well
0: remember. It, with the with the microchip or nanochip what what strikes me as kind of ironic or whatever about that is that you know a lot of folks will admit hey the government is pretty inept at doing a lot of things, right? So, what makes us believe that they can suddenly become so good that they can put a nano chip that you know we don't even know exists in in every vaccine that's getting into every American's arm? I mean, you got to have a lot of faith. Um, so, yeah, interesting. So, I mean, do you do you feel like based on the data uh, that this is is there more risk to sitting it out and saying, I'll just wait. And if I get COVID, I get COVID. Is there more risk on that side or getting the vaccine and suffering potential adverse effects from that? Because clearly, you know, like my wife, who is a physician says, she says, you know, no matter what, you know, treatment you have, there's always possible side effects. Right. All right. I mean, I'm probably slaughtering that. She probably says it differently, but basically I think that's the the gist. And so there, we can't say that the vaccine doesn't potentially have some, you know, some, side effects right so which which is more risky to you getting the vaccine or not getting it
1: i think based on what i've seen as a doctor with as a physician with um side effects from coronavirus infection loss of taste and smell for months on end um difficulty breathing in some people uh blood clots in some people um well you know we've had cases of covid toes um you know things like that. I, I do still think the, va- the 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 actual infection is the, the the more risky way to do this because and again because if you get the vac if you get the the actual infection if you get the virus and you get infected you can spread it to someone else as well. The vaccine you can't spread it. There's mm-hmm. no coronavirus in the vaccine, so you can't get the vaccine and then give the disease. Can't your,
0: shed it, right? <laughs> you,
1: can't, you can't give the disease to someone else, which. Mm-hmm part of the reason why the vaccine is safer as well. So I I do think that the COVID itself, we don't know all of its side effects. People say, well, I don't know the side effects of the vaccine. We still don't know all of the side effects or long-term effects, I should say, of being infected with COVID. That's the other scary part. We don't know. And as science unfolds these things, we may find later on that there are some pretty uh, serious complications. I had a friend who had COVID like five months ago and he was back in the hospital just recently with hooked up to all the cardiac monitors um, you know, having some, having new issues. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, don't know what that is. Um, so a lot of people re- look, go on the CDC webpage, go to the vaccine reporting um, um page on there and they look at it and they say well look you know all these deaths have been are on here and all of these side effects and no side effects and what they don't realize is anybody could actually go on there and report you could go on there and report as as one doctor did you go on there and report yeah i took i took the vaccine and it turned me into the incredible hulk Mm -hmm. and it would literally just stay on there well clearly he didn't become the incredible hulk but it's just a reporting system so a lot of people say well look there's these two thousand or three thousand deaths from the vaccine the cdc site says it that's what's reported, and here's the truth. And this is a it's an un, it's an unfortunate and a, and a, and 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 a um you know disheartening truth. But the truth is, if we said it all at one time, we were going to give a hundred million Americans an apple, a regular, healthy, non-GMO, non-pesticide apple, mm-hmm. nothing unnatural about it, organically grown in someone's backyard. We would find within the next two weeks that we would have. X amount of people who Mm die. Did they die from the apple? No, they died because every day there's a certain amount of people based on our national death rate that are going to die, Mm -hmm. right? So 100 million people, never mind if you give 300 million people, the whole country, 360 million people all got the apple at the same time, you'd have those deaths. Now, what a lot of people do is they get that something happens, they go in and they report, well, you know, we got the vaccine three days ago and now this person has Bell's palsy. Well, people get Bell's palsy all day, every day, um, with or without a vaccine, or mm-hmm. this person has, you know, you know, they have now they have, you know, a cough, a chest pain, whatever. So that that's part of it, and that's part of the misinformation around the vaccine. It will take a long time to go through and try and figure out where there are patterns. Mm-hmm. And remember, with just a few cases, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, that pattern was picked up, and they saw that there was a possibility of some very very rare um, um, blood uh, blood. Cl- yeah. And, um, you know, now they've they've opened it back up because it is so incredibly rare that the chances of you actually getting COVID and getting sick and dying is worse, is is greater than the chance that the vaccine would get you sick, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, the Johnson & Johnson specifically, which is not an mRNA vaccine. So, um, you know, you you just have to understand all of that. I do not think the vaccine is a part of any conspiracy to maim, kill, or control us. (laughs) I think the, the U.S. government is just as afraid um as everyone else of the long-term consequences of covid except they're afraid of its long-term consequences to the environment uh, sorry to the economy to education systems to businesses that have closed or shuttering um they're also afraid of what this does if china does a much better job um managing the pandemic they could leapfrog the united states as the as a global power Mm -hmm. um I think the US government, Trump, uh, Biden, uh, whoever, I don't care who's in power, Mm -hmm. are all thinking types of things in their desperation to try and end the pandemic, which is why you get these massive lockdowns and seemingly draconian measures because they're seeing that China doesn't, the discussions we're having, they can't have, they're not having in China. Sure, sure. They shut down, it's just shut down. That's it.
0: Well, and it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an attorney and I, I look at the, you know, legal side of this and, you know, yeah, sure. We, we as Americans are fiercely independent. We're very individualistic. We have our constitution, which I, you know, love and appreciate. Um, but you, it's interesting. I've heard a lot of folks say, well, this is – this has never happened before. This is tyrannical for states to do this. But it's interesting because you go back in history, of course – Um, You know, back even to 1902, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case that addressed the issue. And actually, even before that, way back in the early 1800s, um, the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court basically said, no, the states have what are called police powers, right? And then, of course, in 1902, the the court uh, talked about how, I think it was in Louisiana, they were quarantining people. And um, that case dealt with whether or not the state had the right to do this kind of thing. And so, this is not new. Uh, In fact, you you may have read um, Dr. Walsh. I don't know if you have uh, "The Great Influenza" by by John Barry, talking about the 1918 flu um, pandemic. And and you you read the history of what happened in the United States then. Churches were closed, businesses were closed. There were lockdowns. They were not for this extended period. In most cases, Uh, there were mask mandates. I mean, I think it was in. Some Western uh, Southwestern city in either Colorado or Arizona, where they were um they had deputized citizens to go out and ticket people and find them for not wearing a mask, and the penalty was up to a year in prison or like a five thousand dollars fine, which was you know astronomically huge back then. So I guess my thing is, you know, historically, I'm not saying we should go back to all of those things exactly. I think there were some infringements perhaps on constitutional liberty. But what we've seen today, I don't know. In my opinion, has been um, yeah, you could say there's some overreach here or there, or whatever. But it's not been um, something that's cons- that that's new. It, we've had this from a legal standpoint on the books, ready for this type of a crisis. Whether you think it's justified or not is another issue. But you know, it's been there. Um, I want to ask you uh, about so you and I are both Seventh Adventist Christians, and um, you know, the Adventist Church has a very Unique history when it comes to health and the health message, as we call it. Um, Some of our listeners may not be familiar with the Adventist, you know, health message, but essentially, you know, um, Adventists advocate for healthy living. And and one of the founders of the Adventist Church who wrote extensively on health and um, social issues was Ellen White. And can you give us kind of a a little overview of what was her position, if she had one, on? vaccines and, you know, public health situations like this. Do we know anything about what she thought about this type of thing?
1: You know, I've, I've tried to do some research. Obviously she missed vaccinations as we understand them today. The vaccinations, as we understand them, today didn't happen until the late 1920s Okay, or late 1920s. And she died in 1915. She did have to deal with smallpox, which kind of goes back even to uh, like Jacobson versus Massachusetts mm-hmm. um, and vaccinations. Um, and so, if you look at the, one of the one of the books um, about her life and related to her her writings is um, uh, the second book, Selected Messages. Um, and in there, her um, one of her secretaries, D. E. Robinson, on uh, under the date June twelfth, nineteen thirty one writes that, um, you know, she, uh, um, that Ellen White actually, um, and anyone could look this up, you know, you, uh, I'll quote it. You asked for defi- definite, it, definite definite and concise information regarding what Sister White wrote about vaccinations and serum. This question can be answered very briefly for so far as we have on any record she did not refer to them in any of her writings. You'll be interested to know, however, that at a time when there was an epidemic of smallpox in the vicinity, she herself was vaccinated and urged her helpers, those connected with her, to be vaccinated. In um, taking this step, Sister White recognized the fact that it has been proven that vaccination either renders one immune from smallpox or greatly lightens its effects if one does come down with it. She also recognized the danger of their exposing others if they fail to take the precaution. And Dee Robinson signed that. So. That's uh, what you can find. Now, some other folks have said, "Well, sh- her son had a bad bout with a vaccine," and I've seen people send that around and say, um, "You know, so she had a problem with vaccine." But again, vaccines, as we know them today, came after all of this mm-hmm. um, in the 19, late 1920s. Smallpox vaccine back then was very—it was a very uh, rudimentary procedure that they used to just to. Uh, like inoculate like, like a cow or something and then pull some off and then give small doses of smallpox to try and get people to have immunity without getting a full disease, <clears throat> you know, very different from what we're able to do today. The vaccines mm-hmm. of the truth is, I mean, you know, a bunch of people are for or against vaccines and I respect your right to have whatever opinion you want. But the truth is when you look at his medical history, probably nothing singularly has saved more lives than vaccines mm-hmm. um, hygiene itself. But vaccines, you know, when you look at smallpox eradicated, you look at polio. I remember having a teacher in second grade who still walked with the brace and the, and the, and the cane and sat in a wheelchair because she had polio when she was a child. Um, don't see that anymore. Um, even other childhood diseases that are, you know, we don't even view as so terrible. A lot of times we're not dealing with them. diseases like haemophilus influenza um, B, um, measles, you know, they just don't circulate and exist like they did even when I was a kid. And it's, it's vaccinations why that's the case. So, you know, there's a lot of argument for and against vaccines. I get that, but I would say that in general, vaccines have been very helpful. Um, They're not the end all be all of health. You know, I'll definitely say that. There's a lot more happen for someone to be healthy, but this would be the context um, that you put it in, um, you know, and and again, you know, if you don't vaccinate, you know, the risk you take is kind of your own, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, they're not the end-all, be-all of health, but it, it might actually keep you alive at least, right? <laughs> so,
1: Or or from a very bad infection and disease, right? sure. Yeah. I would not want my children to have gotten polio. I'll just say that. Yeah. Okay, that would be something I would want to have happen.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, well, and let's, I want to just, you know, we kind of already touched on, you know, mandatory vaccinations. Um, I mean, do you think they work, you know, to have like the government mandated or do you feel like it should come more from the private sector standpoint? Like you mentioned, you know, like an airline says, Hey, you can't fly with us unless you're um, vaccinated. Um, or an employer might say, Hey, listen, you know, like, I've heard some hospital systems are making their employees uh, be vaccinated. Um, do you think either of those approaches are are good? Um, and have you know, or should we just let people kind of decide on their own?
1: Well, I would say that that's let's so let's step back and realize that flu vaccines have been mandated in hospital systems for true right, and I've gotten a flu shot every year for you know the past probably twenty five years mm-hmm. um pretty much because you can't work in the hospital without one, so you know will coronavirus be basically the same thing at some point, probably once the get gets full. FDA, um, the full FDA nod, you know the hospitals will be able to do it. Already the universities are doing it, and does it work? Yeah, if vaccination, if the vaccination is, with the caveat that the vaccination is safe and effective, they work. You're mandating them in especially in closed loop situations like healthcare workers, who you don't want the healthcare worker to bring COVID to work and give it to someone. um mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's one reason why I get the flu shot. I don't, I don't worry that I'm going to get the flu. I don't get the flu, but I don't want to be one who carries it and gives it to someone else. So if this lowers the chance of me doing that, I feel a moral obligation to my patients, the other staff and providers that I do that. Mm-hmm. Same principle is why I got, you know, the, the, the COVID vaccine. You know, I, I would hate to be the person who gives it to somebody with cancer or a frail elderly person and they get it and they get sick and die or, or just get really sick um so d- does the does the mandating of it work again if it's safe and effective mandating it does work with that said um I do think that ultimately um uh workplaces are going to mandate it, and I think enough private sector will probably mandate it that it'll you know it'll get the numbers way up if you can't get on a plane, a bus, a train, go into a ballpark concert, you know maybe even a church I hope that doesn't happen but you know, people are going to wind up, you know, just giving it and getting it. Especially, you know, a year into, you know, we're almost, you know, a year and a half into it. We're almost, we're six months into the vaccine. You know, people are starting to realize, well, nothing's happening to all the people who've been vaccinated. More and more people will eventually, over time, go ahead and get the vaccine.
0: Sure. Well, and so I, I think some of the arguments I've heard have been uh, against getting the vaccine or mandating it would be, well, hey, listen, that's you know not not loving you're you're not allowing freedom um and and i think even with the whole um you know shutdown different states obviously have taken different approaches i live in california where the approach was probably stricter than a lot of other states and you can argue for or against that but i think one of the arguments i've heard has been it's not you know freedom is kind of the ultimate goal and um to shut churches down is depriving me of my freedom to worship. And, you know, of course the counter argument could be, well, but if you're gathering in, you know, physical congregations and large gatherings to worship and you're spreading the disease, that's not a loving Christian thing to do. And, uh, you know, just kind of in closing here, I want to ask you one more question after this, maybe a couple more, but what do you think is the relationship um, between you know loving your neighbor and giving your neighbor freedom, and in a situation like this, like a public health emergency, what do you as a Christian see as being kind of some things to guide us there?
1: well, I was let me say one, I did not like churches being closed um I am very fortunate that at least we still had uh, things like zoom and so people still were able to fellowship together and be fed mm-hmm. uh, I thought you know it, it One of the ironies of this is that, you know, liquor stores were considered essential, at least in the state I live, Mm -hmm. uh, and churches closed. Um, You know, and there are pictures sent around of empty churches and full airplanes during the pandemic. Um, So there was, you know, obviously there's a lot of ways you can look at this. As a Christian, you do have to ask yourself, how do I contribute best to um, the overall health and benefit of a society? And what we saw is that churches that still met during the pandemic, many of them really did have outbreaks. Um, and if you look at the Black Church, uh, and you know, just kind of in general, a lot of leadership in the Black Church died—deacons, um, bishops, pastors—across the different Black denominations um, from COVID. Um, uh, in many cases can be traced back to church services. So when you start to look at it that way, you start saying, well, you know, is it worth the risk to meet together if it means someone might actually lose their life? Um, mm-hmm. th- that's really the question. And as a Christian, I think you argue, well, listen, we let's find some other way to do this until um, kind of the coast is more clear. And I think, fortunately, we're at a point where the coast is more clear. Mm-hmm. Churches are uh, people are going back into buildings. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think, the, like closing churches, you know, a lot of church leadership, let's put it that way, thought that the Christian loving thing to do was to actually shut the churches down um, out of abundance of caution um, to make sure that they didn't infect anyone in the church and that, that people in the church didn't get infected and take it home to people that were even more vulnerable and get them very sick or have them, you know, lose their life over this.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, and I've heard some folks, you know, argue, hey, listen, if if we has, as Americans had been willing to, you know, mask uh, universal mask at the beginning, we might not have needed to close much of anything down, but you know, it's, it's cause you look at some places in Asia where they did that and they were able to keep cases really low, but, uh, we kind of had this hodgepodge. And I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the mixed messaging coming from the CDC was not helpful. Communication has not been that great there in some, some ways, but, um, you know, it's, it, these are, these are tough situations, right? Um, I want to just kind of, let's wrap this up here. I really appreciate your perspective and just kind of giving us, um, I think, different ways to look at this situation. Um, You know, I mean, COVID-19, as you mentioned, has hit, um, you you kind of uh, um, talked about this when you mentioned the black church and and a lot of folks suffering there. I mean, I think statistically, COVID has hit minority groups um, especially hard, right? Um, and so how can we as Christians, you know, especially considering the history of, you know, racial injustice in America, how can we lead the way right now in loving minority groups during this time? And also maybe tell us about your, your, uh, project that uh, you mentioned earlier, the slave food, food project.
1: So this is, uh, I think, You know, as an African American who has, who is a, again, someone who loves the country with all of its imperfections, Mm -hmm. uh, and has, you know, has always has had a hope for the country. um, You know, I do believe when I look at the scripture and prophetically, I do understand that um, there is no uh, utopia on earth. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no perfect land. But I would say this: America. You know, there's a lot of argument now about whether or not America is racist or systemically racist. America does have that history. You know, uh, slavery was systemic racism, mm-hmm. uh, was systemic racism. Um, even um, if you read the book, The Color of Law, written by uh, someone who's not black, um, his name is slipping me right now. The Richard Color Rothstein, Law, yeah. Richard Rothstein outlines very well um, systemic racism in housing in the United States up until you know, the end of the last century, basically. Um, so America's had that tradition. But I want to believe that many of the people um, uh, in America now, white people you know in particular I would say this right now, individually do not they don 't see themselves as racist, and I think mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. work to move uh towards a collective oneness as a nation um, because many people who don 't see themselves as racist may actually have some racist you know tendencies at times sure. may make assumptions or, or, or be prejudiced. But is it a coordinated uh, racist society? You know, I- I'm hoping that we- we've moved away from that. Maybe I'm just foolish. Um, mm-hmm. But the-, the remnants of what happened in the country over the, fa- for the last 400 years for African Americans, Native Americans, and others doesn't just disappear because we become enlightened in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work that does need to be done. And I would say that the probably the strongest organization to do this. Which would show the world the way would Mm. be the church. I wish every suburban white church in America would partner with an inner city urban black church and not to give away anything or to do anything, but just for – fellowship to get to know people to build relationships um share break bread together and then of course all of the you know you know allow for resources to flow in both directions um mentor young people support families that that might need help in both directions um in order to to build a better society i think churches can do that uniquely Mm. jesus says um, by this men will know that you are my disciples that you have love one for another What defines me first, and I'll say this proudly, is not that I am African-American, not that my parents were from Jamaica, not that I'm a physician or a public health specialist. What defines me first and most is that I am a child of the living God. Mm -hmm. I am a Christian bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So – Everything else on earth is temporary. Race is a temporary construct. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. it will disappear based on what's in the book of Revelation. When John saw a number that no man can number standing on a sea of glass from every nation, kindred, and tongue. One day, none of what matters now. Socioeconomic status, what country of origin, language, what you look like. None of it is going to matter. What's going to matter is whether or not you have the character of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But Show that character today. We need to reach out and do what the world seems unable to do. The world seems unable to pull together and find love. Instead, what we are getting is violence, and violence is being responded to with more violence, being responded to with more violence around the globe. The civil rights movement was beautiful because the church at the time said, the black church said, we are going to respond to this systemic racism as Christ would.
2: Mm, and mm,
1: mm. and and they felt hoses and they were bitten by dogs and they were called names and they were spat upon and they kept turning the other cheek until the embarrassment of the world watching america do that made changes in this country mm-hmm. it is no longer a popular stance um i don't think in the modern activism and i think unfortunately that you know is going to be difficult it's not very different than disciples hiding from jesus as uh, as pilate Ask the Jewish leadership, who would you choose, Christ or Barabbas? If we're not careful, we will choose through activism, Barabbas, because we will look for what is going to fix the world today. That's what they thought. This Mm -hmm. guy is a revolutionary. He'll get us out from under Rome today. We must continue to choose Christ and his methods Mm -hmm. if we are going to change the world and really have social justice.
0: Mm. Wow, you're preaching. Yeah, I think as Christians, you're you're, you're talking about that third way, right? Um, Absolutely. Yep. I think uh, Shane Claiborne puts it this way. He says, it's not fight nor flight. It's the arduous pursuit of reconciliation and justice. And uh, I really feel like that uh, you're right. The church needs to lead the way. Well, Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, just, again, giving us this perspective, really appreciate it. Blessings on you and your ministry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Do Justice. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate the Do Justice podcast on Apple Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now.